Welcome to the Sue Jenner Show, your unique perspective on all things related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. In segment one, we'll get what is likely the final update on the saga in Michigan of the teenager who was arrested and sent to jail for not doing her homework. We look at an appeal by the slender man copycat killer, Morgan Geyser, and we'll get a peek into secret societies inside America's police departments. In segment two, as promised, we'll be doing a deep dive into testa lying, police dishonesty that's directed to the public, the criminal injustice system, and the courts. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Follow all of our social media channels for updates on your civil rights and the criminal injustice system by subscribing at facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense and on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at T-L-O-B-J. Look to T-L-O-B-J.com for all the information you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that the Michigan teenager sent to jail for not doing her homework has had her probation terminated by the judge that sent her to detention? I did. What an incredible turn of events. This thing has been going on and everybody has been watching it from around the nation. And uh, we're really happy to see that justice is being served. Absolutely. Her probation is now terminated, which means she's no longer on court, under court supervision and does not have any terms to comply with. So what does this mean for Grace now? What is a typical outcome in this situation? So it's not typical, but it's a shrewd move by the judge. Grace's supervising probation officer had asked for the termination of probation and it was adopted by the court. Now, Grace's defense team, the same team that filed with the Court of Appeals, had also filed to have this judge removed from her case due to her examples of bias and conflicts of interest. So this was an opportunity for the judge to save face and protect her seat and her public standing by avoiding the litigation of this appeal and likely having the case reversed and sent back to her for a resentencing following an admonishment by the Court of Appeals. Wow, I mean, that, that's amazing. Her family must be quite relieved. So what will happen now with the family and, and with Grace? Grace and her family are gonna to get to move on with their lives. After suffering the trauma of having been jailed during a pandemic for the purposes of teaching her a lesson about doing her homework and uh, attending Zoom school, um, you know, she's, she's now going to be able to move on and attend school like any normal teenager this fall. Um, as far as what normal is going to be this fall, we'll have to wait and see. You know, it's, it's a really sad outcome that national scrutiny has eliminated this young lady's uh, normally afforded juvenile privacy. Uh, because typically juvenile cases are entitled to go through their rehabilitation and keep their youthful transgressions a secret. But without the national press attention and the, the action of Michigan state lawmakers, she likely would be still sitting in detention and would stay there through a significant portion of the 2020-21 school year. We at the Law Officer Brian Jones want to wish her well 
and hope that she moves forward in her holistic growth um, journey. Well, I wish the same. I'm, I'm very happy about this outcome. I'm, I'm happy they came up with a strategy where the judge could save face and feel comfortable making the right decision. Erica, did you also see, and staying in the area of juvenile law, that a Wisconsin appellate court denied the appeal of Morgan Geyser? She was charged and convicted as an adult for the attempted murder of her friend in 2014. Now, that case made headlines back then because it was inspired by the horror figure slash meme Slenderman. I didn't see this, and I have to admit something to you, Brian. I do not watch horror movies. So if, if you could remind me of the case and how it fits in with uh, the horror movie character, that would be great. So Slenderman is a, was a meme that originated in the, in the early 2000s and grew in fame mostly among young teens. Um, so it's a horror meme about children having their their minds taken over and engaging in, in horrible acts of violence. Um, what ultimately happened with this young lady is that she came to believe that the Slender Man was talking to her and threatening her and her family. And she ultimately convinced a friend of hers to uh, try to murder uh, this young lady. It sounds like she has some mental illness um, involved in the situation that occurred. Um, if she pled guilty to this in the past, how is she able to file an appeal now? So even with the guilty plea, the plea must be done properly and according to both state statutory, state constitutional, and federal constitutional standards. Now, the sentence must also meet constitutional and statutory standards and is reviewable by a superior, in this case, appellate court. Now, it's a much narrower avenue for relief than had the case gone to trial, but it is still available. In this particular case, the appellate team is appealing a couple of issues. One is the pretrial denial of a motion to suppress her statements during the trial level litigation, as well as the severity of her sentence and her ability to be uh, first, treated as a juvenile during her case, and second, the duration of her potential incarceration in a state mental institution. Now, the Court of Appeals in this case found that even if the statements uh, could have been suppressed or should have been suppressed, the error in not suppressing the statements was not significant in light of the totality of the evidence against Ms. Gazer. Wow, that's really interesting. But th this is such an old case. Uh, how is this appeal coming in 2020 when she pleaded guilty so many years ago? The appellate process takes a substantial period of time in a lot of situations. Now, all of that time is typically spent in custody unless there's a motion to stay the execution of the sentence, like there was in the uh, Grace case over in Michigan. Now, this case is unique because even though Ms. Gazer could have been tried as a juvenile, she was charged as an adult. So first, that stretched out the trial level proceedings. And second, that also elongated the appellate process because it became so complicated. It became such a 
complicated legal issue. And it stripped away many of the protections that she had under the juvenile system, which was a basis for her appeal. Her, her appellate attorney has stated on the record that he intends to continue to litigate this and is moving on to the Wisconsin State Supreme Court to continue to advocate for Ms. Gazer. So can you explain more about how Morgan pled guilty but was not found guilty by reason of mental defect or disease? Yeah, so this is a case where the defense attorney was working really hard to secure the best possible outcome for the client. Here, a juvenile with a severe mental illness was charged as an adult and could have faced the remainder of her days in prison. The defense and the state were able to work out a plea bargain that saved the victim from having to testify against her former friend and protected the public from Ms. Gazer's untreated mental illness by ensuring that she would be hospitalized until she can be restored um, to a level of competency and sanity and is no longer a danger to the community. Now, in this particular case, um, the maximum period which she can remain in an institution is up to 40 years. Now, Ms. Gazer can continue to petition the court for release into the community um, under a supervised situation if her treatment is successful and the mental health providers deem that she is restored to the point that she can be released into the community in a safe situation. Now, the accused has very few rights in these situations and the measurement is not necessarily based on constitutional rights or objective standards, but rather the subjective interpretation of the clinical staff. Wow, what an interesting uh, piece of law that you, you've brought up here. Um, I mean, it sounds like they've done everything, everything they can for everyone involved, to be fair. This is a case that was well litigated at the trial level and continues to be well litigated in the Court of Appeals. We also want to throw out a quick reminder this week that the Trump administration's new Title IX regulations go into effect on August 14th restoring the due process rights of the accused. With back to school time coming in as it is, the regulations are surprisingly being rolled out with more of a whisper rather than a roar. Um, now this will absolutely affect a variety of cases that are in litigation both at the school level and through the district courts and courts of appeals across the United States. This is going to have a significant effect on how students interact with one another right now and in the future. Well, it sounds like it really does level the playing field to have the Title IX protections cover both parties. Did you also see this week a shocking expose by the LA Times detailing secret societies plaguing law enforcement in California? Oh my God, like secret societies like the Skulls? Just like the skulls in the movie, Erica, these are secret cliques that have formed within the law enforcement community that glorify violent police tactics and feature their own forms of colors and flags in the form of tattoos. These groups have existed way back into the 1990s and LA County in particular has paid out more than $21 million in lawsuits against this small group of deputies. These, these groups have uh, 
been under administrative review supposedly for decades and are currently under investigation by the FBI. So what's wrong with a click that helps boost morale and camaraderie amongst the law enforcement officers? You know, Erica, if this were just a social club, I don't know that there would be a significant problem with it. But what the LA Times reported and the investigations are revealed is that these groups are actively working together to subvert police priorities and goals. The club's secrecy naturally fosters a wall of silence into investigations of officer misconduct. The clubs have actively engaged in witness intimidation, and the clubs celebrate officer-involved shootings with parties. This kind of behavior is unacceptable in the law enforcement community. And, and ironically, it's the same phenomenon that we see police officers criticize in street gangs. Now, the, the way that this dynamic has played out in this group in particular and in secret groups in general is that the group demands loyalty and secrecy above all else to the group. So it naturally extends the misconduct and the biases that we've discussed many times that police frequently engage in. It ingrains that misconduct and those biases as a precondition of remaining friends and being a part of the in-group. Um, and the subgroups specifically follow a belief that the ends justify the means, which is one of the topics we're going to talk about later when we do our deep dive into Testaline. Now, the largest payout over the last 20 years has been $10.1 million to Francisco Carrillo, who spent 20 years in prison and was released um, from prison after a murder conviction was overturned in 2010. Back in 1991, he was 16 years old when he was framed by police officers who were a part of one of these groups for a fatal drive-by shooting. He had maintained his innocence through two trials and all of these years in prison. The deputies who were part of the uh, secret society, the Linwood Vikings, persuaded witnesses to identify Mr. Carrillo as a mem and they were members of white supremacist groups. So this was racially motivated. Um, this was a, a bias-oriented misconduct by the police, and the misconduct was covered up time and time again because of the secret society. These groups also create a toxic work environment designed to exclude people of color and women from engaging in law enforcement. And it leads to more bias in policing because it creates a lack of perspective from marginalized groups. Wow, this is such a sensational story and not in a good way. It really is. And it highlights the importance of having systems in place to hold police officers accountable. And speaking of holding police officers accountable, it's time for us to move into segment two, which is our deep dive into another area of police accountability, police dishonesty in the courtroom and to anyone outside of the, the law enforcement family, any, anyone outside the thin blue line, as they like to call it. Now, the concept of testalying has been academically researched since the early 1990s with several papers being published on the phenomenon. 
So what is testaline exactly? It does not sound like it's good in court. First and foremost, testaline is not a term coined by academics. It's not a term coined by defense attorneys. And I'm honestly a little disappointed in my profession because we didn't come up with this term first. It is a term created and embraced by police officers. The Mullen Commission in New York City explained the concept as this. Officers justify being dishonest in court because they feel that they're not quite lying because they're, they're not outright being dishonest, but they're not telling the whole truth or they're telling a skewed version of the truth. They see this as a middle ground between pure honesty and pure dishonesty. Officers feel that they can tread ethically in this middle ground because they think that they have society's best interests at heart, which is the conviction of the guilty. This is where the ends justify the means lives in their lives. Now, lying, perjury, and deceit are all characterized negatively by police officers. But when they talk among themselves about testaline, it's seen as morally acceptable because it's deception used against the accused who is him or herself blameworthy in their minds. Testaline is therefore viewed as a small moral compromise that can prevent a larger moral wrong, which is the non-conviction of a uh, believed guilty defendant. Testaline may involve the creation of a falsified confidential informant to secure a search warrant, it often includes lying about the circumstances that justify a warrantless search or arrest. They use it to justify and they use it to support planting evidence on a suspect. They use it to justify increasing the quantity of drugs found on a suspect or even manufacturing evidence of a crime having ever occurred. Most testifying occurs during the investigative and pretrial stages of the criminal justice system, um, and especially occurs in suppression hearings because the state in those hearings has the initial burden of proof, police officer statements carry significant weight in the disposition of those hearings, and officers feel like things like the exclusionary rule aren't fair because they hold police accountable. And we have seen time and time again that what a police officer likes the least is being held accountable and held to a standard of obeying the law. The general fellowship among police officers prevents them from being candid with researchers and administrators and really anyone outside of their close-knit law enforcement community. But studies have shown that although this is similar to other subcultures and other professions, police subculture in particular is more pronounced and able to engage in the kind of cover-ups and testifying that we see here, the, the white lies as, as many people call them, uh, because police officers operate under distinctly high accounts of stress, they have excessively broad discretion, and their jobs are admittedly dangerous. Now they often have low pay, they're low education individuals, um, their jobs have low benefits, and they have a misconceived uh, perception that the society doesn't really appreciate what they do. It really helps to explain why people who are in the best position to fix these issues, 
police administrators and prosecutors refuse to stop it when you think about what they have to do in order to actually put an end to this behavior. Prosecutors rely on police officer testimony, whether it's truthful or not, to secure convictions. And acknowledging this is a problem for, um, acknowledging this is a problem among police officers would require the government to admit that there is almost never real punishment for police perjury and police misconduct. It would also call into question the, the justification for literally every conviction there is out there. Because what we know from the studies is that almost every officer engages in this practice and they feel that it's morally justified, again, with that the ends justify the means mentality. So what are the incentives that encourage this practice since it's so terrible? The exclusionary rule allows a court to remove illegally obtained evidence from presentation at a trial. So any evidence obtained from an illegal search can't be admitted against the defendant who that evidence was gathered from. So police officers frequently provide false justifications for searches and arrests of civilians. In the field, they engage in a search whether it's justified or not knowing full well that it's likely in violation of that individual's constitutional rights. And when they get into the courtroom, they make up a legally sufficient, albeit factually dubious, justification for their conduct. When police break the law, they should theoretically be subject to suffering consequences like suspension, dismissal, civil lawsuits, and criminal prosecution. But in practice, police departments reward officers whose arrests lead to convictions, and they reward them with promotions and raises and awards. Wow, I mean, <laughs> that sounds like the opposite of what is supposed to be happening. Um, what are the remedies, if any, um, for the average person? The most important remedy, and especially referring to uh, sheriffs is to vote. Vote for a candidate that will achieve prosecutorial and police reform. So citizens need to research their candidates for county prosecutor. They need to research their candidates for county sheriff. Those are two elected law enforcement positions across the United States and a place where everyday citizens can influence police reforms. Second, it's important to protect yourself with smartphone, video, and audio recording of all interactions with police every single time. And make sure you don't publish it without consulting your state's consent laws. Third, no walk, no talk, no blow, and do so politely. Fourth, file civil lawsuits, file administrative complaints, and don't back down in the face of the police blue wall of silence. If you're charged and you need a defense, get a lawyer who will hold the police accountable. Get a lawyer who will stand up for your rights. Those are all very good suggestions. And I hope that everybody watching is going to take those seriously. Um, and if they ever do get into a situation, they should absolutely consult an attorney. And uh, if they are in your area, you're absolutely the best. So hopefully they pick up the phone, give you a call and find out what their 
options are, you can help them out with the proper strategy to get them through the other side. That's absolutely right, Erica. We will be here to defend our clients' rights as we would want ours defended. And I really appreciate you saying that, and I appreciate you and everyone joining us today for this important discussion. To make sure that you are more informed about how the government is test lying in court, deceiving judicial officials, and engaging in an ends-justify-the-means mentality, um, make sure that you follow our social media, facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense, at T-L-O-B-J on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And make sure you search for our hashtags, no walk, no talk, and no blow on all of these social media platforms. Next week, we'll be back with a new sui generis perspective on the next big thing in the news related to your civil rights and the criminal injustice system as well as a deep dive on false confessions and inadvertent admissions. Erica, my grandfather always told me, don't do anything I wouldn't do. And to that today, I add, if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I would want mine defended.